This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello and welcome to Live and Learn on the Bigger Picture with me, Lim Su. And last week, the World Economic Forum released their Global Gender Gap Report of 2022, which provides an index of where countries stand in achieving gender parity um, compared to when the World Economic Forum first started releasing these reports back in 2006. So in this current report, out of 146 countries, Malaysia ranked 103rd and globally it's said that um, it will take another 132 years to close the gender gap. So joining me on the show today to discuss what this means for us in terms of our efforts to achieve gender equality and how we can possibly shorten that time frame if it is possible at all is Sivanandi Tanindran, Executive Director of the Asian Pacific Resource and Research Centre for Women, also known as ARO. Thank you so much for joining me today, Siva. Thank you, Suen. Always a pleasure to be on this segment of Live and Learn. Glad to have you on again. And you know, as always, we're talking about very important issues, but also perennial issues, right, that we seem to never be able to stop talking about. Um, so why are gender gap reports and indices important? You know, how do they help us? Yeah. Um, so as you have said, you know, so the Global Gender Gap Index was first introduced by the World Economic Forum in 2006 itself. You know, it became like the sort of like flagship uh, indicator uh, base uh, in order to compare countries' gender gaps across four dimensions, right? Economic opportunities, education, health and political leadership. So the gender gap indices try to measure the differences in attainment between men and women on particular indicators, mm -hmm. right? For example, wage differentials. What is the difference in pay between men and women for a particular job? This difference is what constitutes the gap, you know? And of course, you know, in the numbers you will see in the report, you know, if you move closer towards one means that gap is, you know, uh, non-existent or extremely narrow, right? Well, Moving towards zero means the gap is extremely wide, right? Uh, so gender gap indicators help us understand the elements of discrimination that women experience in comparison to men in these particular chosen sectors, right? And, and in this, you know, the most famous gender gap index report by the World Economic Forum, um, you know, these particular sectors are seen as the ones that um, make the change for women and girls, you know, which is basically economics, education, health, and politics, right? Um, and it's interesting also to note, right, in each sector, there are a number of indicators, and this forms mm -hmm. an index value. So in economic opportunities, it is not only labor force participation, it is wage equality, wage parity, uh, number of, uh, I mean, women's share of legislators and, you know, uh, managers and those type of jobs. And lastly, also women's share of, um, I think they are technical professionals, um, which are seen. So they're like four indicators that make up for economic uh, opportunities, right? And then they put all of these sectors together. And then we have the overall value of which, you know, our ranking either as, you know, 10, 20 or 103, as you have said, you know, is given to us, right? Um, so that's uh, one of the key things that you talk about, yeah. Hmm. 
out of 146 countries, we were ranked, um, as we've mentioned a couple of times, we were ranked 103rd. Um, last year, we were ranked 112, but that was out of 156 countries. So relatively, you know, we've actually remained in quite a similar spot. Now, interestingly, I saw a couple of news articles pointing out that we were ranked behind um, Singapore, which was at 49, Thailand at 79, and Indonesia as well at 92. You know, are you surprised by where we stand, Siva? Yeah, I think uh, um, we have and we have almost always clustered around this average score, like most countries, and, you know, and uh, I think that you rightly pointed out, I mean, previously we were 112 out of 156 and today we are 103 out of 146, if I'm not mistaken, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that our score is like, um, there are a number of factors for us to consider, Right. Um, where we do well, you know, when you look at look at how the scores are broken, you know, we do well in education and health. But that's also where everyone else does well. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and everyone does well for a certain number of issues. So if you have health, and that's a field that I do, like sexual and reproductive health and rights, uh, you will see that the two indicators, there are only two indicators that make talk about health. Right. And that's uh, sex ratio at birth. Mm-hmm. And the other is um, uh, mortality. Yes. Right. So the difference is uh, life expectancy. You know, so when men die versus when women die. Right. Um, and it doesn't actually look at a more holistic idea of health. Right. I mean, what happens between the time we're born and the time we die. <laughs> right. Uh, what are the health services and all of that? So I think that, you know, if it was if the indicator was nuanced, I think our performance would you know improve, you know, based on that. So you can, I mean, like, and you mentioned some of our neighbors who are doing better, but I also wanted to point out to you, uh, Lao PDR, it's a small landlocked LDC or a less developed country, mm-hmm. you know, which is actually ranking 53rd and they rank highest in the world with regards economic participation and opportunity with a score of 0.88, right? We're keeping in mind that one is where's this perfect parity. So the reason that being is that this index measures the gap, you know, but not necessarily the development. So, for example, if both men and women are earning $30 a day, Mm -hmm. $30 a month, you know, this denotes or is considered as wage parity Mm -hmm. uh, as compared to like, you know, a woman earning, you know, $500 a month versus a man earning $600 a month, then then this is seen as a difference, Mm -hmm. right? So, and, um, and then if both men and women uh, have reported that they are being paid equally for equal work, then this constitutes wage equality according to the index. You know, I mean, if you go at the back and say, okay, what is the sources of data? So this this is the gap, you know, in the gender gap index, which we must acknowledge, right? So, uh, uh, but if we look at our better neighbors, like you have rightly done, you know, if we look at countries like the Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, and Indonesia, who are more similar to us on the development scale, right? And ask, how and why do they do better? And where they do better is in those indicators around economic participation and opportunity and the political participation of women. Um, and if you have been following the Gender Gap Index uh, report, you know very well that the Philippines has almost always come up you know, highly year after year after year, right? Mm-hmm. And I, for me, I feel that one of the reasons is because the Philippines has a robust legal framework to ensure non-discrimination and equality for women. 
you know, and they formulated the Magna Carta for Women from the year 2009, which is like their premier equal rights act equivalent, right? Mm -hmm. And by that uh, foundational law, we have seen the tremendous strides in closing the gender gap in many areas, even beyond the sectors captured in the Global Gender Index. You know, and I bring this point up because even in the SDGs on goal five, which is goal on gender equality, the first indicator is on existence or creation of legal frameworks ensuring non-discrimination and equality. So a law like the Magna Carta, which I think women's organizations in Malaysia were hoping um, the Gender Equality Act would become, right? Mm -hmm. um, it becomes the foundation where all other laws and policies can be updated and amended in order to ensure non-discrimination and equality for women. So of course, then that's the one thing, you know, the Philippines, when they did, they did that right, you know, and their achievements in the economic sector and political sector fall in line in accordance with this. You know, I mean, of course, but that's my opinion. And, um, you know, and I think you also brought up Singapore, you know, so let's look at Singapore. Now, they were able to improve their positions via these indicators in a very different way, right? Wage equality and wage parity, for sure, because, you know, they have a they are part and parcel of the uh, liberal economic framework, right? But also in things like political participation. And we need to ask, how did this happen, you know, in a country where in the 80s and 90s, you know, was known to have a pro-family bias, right, in its policies. And this happened out of the political strategy of the dominant party in government, the PAP, mm -hmm. right, which self-introduced in 2009 through its women's wing, and aim to take 30% share of the seats for women, right? This was, of course, a political strategy on their part in order to ensure that the party kept up to date with the sentiments of voters, half of them female and well-educated, you know, in, in 2009. And while there is no, like, law on quota, this shows how political parties themselves can take measures to ensure female political participation. And amongst this, so you have... Uh, women uh, in parliament, you have women uh, as part of the cabinet, mm -hmm. and I mean, the three indicators that you have. And then there is one which is weighted very strongly, which is if you if your head of state is female. Mm -hmm. And you know very well that in the past five years, we have seen President Halima Yaakob holding office, right? So these two pushed up Singapore's cause, you know? So I believe that they have, uh, uh, the PAP continues to field more female candidates, even, you know, uh, in comparison to the opposition parties, and all of their female candidates do well in the elections, you know. And I think that through this, they have been able to create that more diversity in the cabinet as well, um, you know, uh, at the, from the last uh, time uh, that I read about the election successes, yeah. Hmm. All right. So the gender gap report only looks at very specific indicators, which could work either to your benefit or to your detriment, right? If your other progresses are not captured in these um, statistics. Um, let's go for a quick break, Siva. And when we come back, you know, let's talk a bit more about what are the gender gap issues that we are facing here in Malaysia that we need to address. I'm speaking today to Siva Nanditan Indiran, Executive Director of the Asian Pacific Resource and Research Centre for Women on the 2022 Global Gender Gap Report. We'll be right back after a quick break on BFM 89.9. 
Welcome back to Live and Learn on the Bigger Picture with me, Lim Su. And joining me on the show today is Sivanandi Tanindaran, Executive Director of the Asian Pacific Resource and Research Centre for Women. And we are discussing the gender gap and specifically in reference to the recently released Global Gender Gap Report 2022. And before the break, you know, we were talking about um, Malaysia's ranking, which is 103rd out of 146 countries, as well as, you know, why um, our neighbouring countries countries are doing better when it comes to addressing the indicators that are listed in the gender gap report. Now, Siva, women's rights issues have been very much at the forefront. Um, There have been quite a few that have been very much at the forefront in the past couple of years, right? But what do you think are the main issues that we have that we should prioritise in addressing when it comes to gender gap and and our progress towards gender equality? Yeah, I think that there are a variety of issues, of course, you know, Uh, I mean, if we talk about the issues that come out of the gender gap, you know, uh, which is, you know, seen as the economic sector and the political sector, right? Um, But, um, of course, overall, I feel, you know, there are other gaps, right? And overall legislative framework to ensure non-discrimination and equality for women is definitely one of the gaps. Equality within the family for uh, women and girls is another gap that we also have. Um, And of course, you know, sexual and reproductive autonomy, right? Because we've seen those issues of uh, early age marriage uh, rise up. Uh, We've seen uh, issues of the, you know, inability of uh, young unmarried women to be able to access contraception. So these are some of those issues that definitely come up and, you know, hamper uh, equality and opportunities for women and girls. Um, But I feel like, you know, in the gender gap report, you know, uh, I feel that, um, you know, the work around um, economic participation is something that, you know, the government has been actually concerned about, right, for the last 10 years that I can remember. And Kazana Research Institute has done really, you know, tremendous research and has made recommendations. But, you know, our ability as a society, and I mean like society, both government, private sector, as well as organizations for us to take forward those recommendations and, you know, realize them. I mean, those are some of the gaps uh, that are occurring, you know. So uh, I feel like that it has economic participation of women has been identified, you know, by so many different stakeholders, um, but we're not able to actually make um, the strides that we want to see, right? So amongst our neighbors, I mean, like to go back to our comparing, you know, keeping up with our Joneses uh, type of uh, frame that we have, you know, we can see that, you know, our labor force participation is lower than, you know, either Singapore or Thailand or Indonesia. So women are participating in the labor workforce at higher rates. And I think that, uh, and both Thailand and Indonesia even have improved their performance on the indicators through those wage equality and that wage parity indicators that I had mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the indicators that they were really able to up was a significant rise in equality in the professional and technical workers. You know, in Thailand, there are actually more female professional and technical workers than men themselves. So um, they have a score of, you know, one, which is like perfect uh, equality, right? Um, And I think that, you know, so this is something that maybe we can look at, you know, as a gap um, in our education system. It's like, are we able to actually produce technical and professional workers? And because maybe these professional and technical workers have better 
career pathways or occupation pathways that, you know, perhaps some of the more academic disciplines that are being churned out uh, do. You know, so that's perhaps something for us to think about. Um, and of course, I mean, like, I mean, it was not only Singapore, but uh, Thailand also had a uh, political participation, had a voluntary party quota system, mm -hmm. you know, and but although only one party, the Democratic Party has that 30% quota, and they have about 15% share of women in parliament, right? Um, and Indonesia is also similar. It also uses a gender quota, but it's the quota is actually 30% of all candidates put forth by political parties must be women, right? But and elected are about maybe 17 to 80, 18%. But both of these countries, unlike us, have had a female head of state, right? So Thailand had Ying Lakshinawatra and, you know, uh, Indonesia had Megawati, you know, as their president. So I think that definitely, you know, we can think about having a female prime minister in Malaysia. I think a lot of people, myself included, have been, you know, rooting for that, um, hoping for someone to step up to the plate. Let's talk about political representation for a bit, right? Because um, overall, globally, you know, the report found that there was only a meager 22% um, progress towards political empowerment. And when you look at Malaysia's data, it's very much similar to that. Now here, it has been mooted before that we should include a quota when it comes to political representation. But of course, nothing really has come to fruition. Um, what do you think are stumbling blocks when it comes to better women empowerment in or women participation in politics here in Malaysia? Yeah, definitely. I think that, uh, you know, there's like uh, stereotypes and preconceived notions about the place of women and girls and the difficulty to look at women and girls as being, you know, political leaders in society, you know. And, and this is really surprising because, you know, all of the uh, stories that are very often told to us about, you know, the freedom struggle talks about, you know, the role of women in the freedom struggle, right, mm -hmm. uh, for independence against the Punjab. You know, so but yet we forget about that, you know, and then we also have like, you know, so many exemplary uh, women leaders, uh, you know, who are heads uh, who were heads of ministries before or who are head of institutions, right, or public institutions. Uh, and yet, you know, the common perception is, well, those women are an exception and that leadership doesn't automatically come to women. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, the stereotypes around, you know, whether women are too emotional, you know, they're not committed enough or they're distracted by home duties or they will have, you know, they will not be able to do the job as well as um, uh, as men will. Right. So these continue to emerge in conversations, you know. And then I think it's also I remember, well, you know, at a time that we thought that when Dr. Wan Aziza was slated to be the MB of Slango, this was many, many years ago. Right. The main argument against her was that, you know, she would not be able to accompany the sultan to prayers during functions. You know, so these types of considerations become the barrier for women to occupy the highest political posts in the country. Mm. You know, and um, we can also, you know, and then when we come to quotas, I mean, I'm sure, Suen, you've heard it, you know, everyone says the often raised argument is that, well, oh, this needs to mer be meritocratic and how people see quotas. Uh, as a means of circumventing the meritocracy, right? Mm -hmm. So this argument, you know, fails to take into consideration the considerable barriers to political participation that women face, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's the gender stereotypes, the financial barriers, the lack of support mechanisms at family and community level to rise up as a leader, you know? So I think that, uh, you know, quotas have been used and at least can up the participation 
um, and put their some female candidates and leaders out there and then, you know, change the perception of society, right? Um, and honestly, and I, we, we take a good look around, you know, can we see of all of the political leaders we have either at state level or national level that, you know, these individuals have emerged through a meritocratic process, right? To me, you know, I feel like there's a dearth of talent in the political field, you know, and very often I think that there are many, many women who would be and could be doing a stellar job in some of these positions, but simply lack the opportunity and the pathway to do so. You know, so that's my, uh, uh, that is my perception. So, and the thing is like, you know, well, we haven't tried the quota, so why not try it? And then after that, we can say whether it works for us or not. But let's just not like shove it off by saying, oh, perhaps it will never work because until we try, we won't do that, right? Mm. So I, I think we would strongly benefit as a society to introduce some of these quotas uh, uh, that other countries have done. Mm, because that way, then you will know for sure whether it works or not, rather than, you know, just projecting that it possibly will not work. Exactly. Now, what I found interesting was, right, we've been talking about the years that it will take for us to close that political gap. Um, before the pandemic, it was said to be around 100 years. And then, of course, COVID happened and then that gap just widened to 136 years um, in 2021, although this year now it's shortened a bit, a tiny bit to 132. But, you know, are you concerned that the pandemic is going to have lasting impact on how this gap has widened and, you know, then it will just make it even more of a difficult task for us to close that gap? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, this 132 years uh, which you mentioned uh, to close the gender gap is a global average, you know, and this is a number which is like kind of ameliorated by the successes of Europe and North America who are expected to close their gender gap in like 60 years or mm -hmm. 70 years, something like that. But in East Asia and Pacific grouping where, you know, we come under, it will apparently take 168 years to close the gender gap. Yes, 168 years, you know. So that's not going to be in my lifetime, the lifetime of my child or the lifetime of my grandchild. <laughs> and perhaps my great, great, great grandchild can see this gender gap close, right? So as you said, you know, uh, the report also, you know, correctly points to the learnings from the COVID pandemic, right? That um, there's an anticipation it anticipates a reversal in the economic participation and opportunities uh, for women mm -hmm. because um, this time round, the unemployment hit women harder during this crisis than previous times. Um, gender gap in care work uh, was also noted uh, as uh, having risen during the pandemic as, and, and you know, we, we lived through that. So we experienced and we heard of, of how women had to do uh, not only the home tasks and the work tasks, but also take on the role of, uh, you know, doing the school education tasks as well, right? And then the additional like medical, uh, home medical related tasks with, COVID, with the COVID pandemic. So the extended lockdown, you know, meant that, you know, women workers had to opt to different types of employment due to this uh, increased care burden, or they had to drop out altogether, mm -hmm. you know. Um, the Interestingly, the report also like kind of touches on all of, they call these contextual indicators. So it doesn't affect the index standing, mm -hmm. but, you know, they talk about these things. Um, they also talked about wealth accumulation for women, you know. And interestingly, they said was most affected by having children. Now, this is similar to what, you know, we have found uh, in Malaysia, isn't it? That 
when do women drop out of the workforce is when they have a child. So in every country, a woman with a child had less wealth accumulation in comparison to the average. So there's already a gender gap, right? But the gender gap was wider for women who had a child. Mm -hmm. And this is probably due to their ability to like kind of, um, you know, work a full-time job or to be able to have resources to invest because they have to, you know, put the uh, resources onto the child for childcare or education purposes, right? And also this corresponds, you know, with the burden of care work as well, right? Mm -hmm. And yet there is one, it is like women who had no life event now, what is this a life event? Life event is basically one who did not, you know, experience this adverse life events of death. You did not have uh, somebody, your parent didn't die on you when you were young. Your spouse didn't die uh, when you were young and leaving you with a burden of this one. You did not face any illness, you know, or a disability or a morbidity of any sort. Mm -hmm. so these people who are protected from these life events, they had higher wealth. These women had higher wealth accumulation than average. Right. So this is basically the inequality between the classes that we talk about. Right. How like some groups of people are better protected against adverse events and some are less uh, protected against adverse events. So there is a class factor that also um, uh, which has been no. I mean, they don't call it a class factor because it's the world economic fabric, but uh, it is the class factor that comes into uh, play in this kind of uh, indicator. Mm. Because when we look at women's rights issues, we can we cannot look at them in silo, right? We have to look at all the other areas in which it intersects with, um, you know, Siva, you mentioned earlier that the the progress towards the gender gap, right? We might not even see, it, we won't see it in our lifetime, nor in our children or grandchildren's lifetime potentially. So then, someone might just say, well, then why should I make this a priority in this lifetime, right? Especially for policymakers or if you are someone who has the authority to make decisions like that. So why, what would you say to these people then, you know, why make the effort to improve the gender gap? Yeah, uh, I think, uh, so when, you know, this is a very pertinent question in the sense that we have to look at the political context, right? I think in the 70s and the 80s, development was very much a priority of governments, right? So a lot of governments invested. I mean, and Malaysia definitely followed that trajectory. You know, our investments in, you know, health and education, like putting up, you know, uh, Tun Razak, putting up, you know, a school in every district and a hospital in every district. I mean, like those were, that was the vision of, uh, uh, I guess, the earlier political leaders. It's just happened, I guess, in the last two decades, whether it's a financialization of the economy or, you know, us belonging to, how do I say, the global market system, and we seem to be going, you know, in every government handling crisis after crisis. So we had COVID. COVID was a crisis. You know, we had the floods in Malaysia, which is a climate change uh, induced crisis. Right. And now we have the war in you know, Russia and Ukraine, which actually we have a very small, we have no part to play at all. And yet because of that, you know, there's a global fuel shortage and a food shortage, which is, then again becomes our crisis. Right. Um, so we are going like, you know, uh, on an annual basis from one crisis to another crisis, you know, and I think that, you know, we think about these large crises that are happening and we take our focus away from who is affected from the crisis. Why are we concerned about 
crisis? You know, why are we concerned about economic uncertainty? Isn't it because this crisis hits people, especially marginalized people? By this, I mean, you know, women and poor people, young people, persons with disabilities, etc. right? We want to solve the uh, uh, economic crisis or the economic uncertainty, the COVID crisis is because it's hitting these people the hardest. So I'll when we make our policies and program response, it should not just respond to a crisis, but without including, you know, the people, right? Uh, so the holistic response comes from the focus on the people who are affected. And gender is a critical aspect of any economic recovery and resilience policy or project or program, you know, that, you know, governments want to uh, uh, carry out. You know, and if we look at like political uncertainty, you know, and think about how we as a nation, you know, can utilize this uh, global moment of uncertainty to improve, you know, our global competitiveness and position our country strongly in the globe in the global arena. You know, uh, and there've been even the smallest countries who have been able to do this. You know, for example, Rwanda. So Rwanda came out of a genocide, has used social development, gender, and women's rights to regain global attentions for all of the right reasons. And we too have started something like this again during our COVID response, right? And the work of our Ministry of Health has been stellar with positioning Malaysia as a global player. So what's stopping the rest of us, right? What is stopping the rest of the ministries and the rest of the sectors, right? Because uncertain times, I feel, call us to utilize new approaches and we haven't used gender as a fundamental building block of our society and our nation for the past few decades. So why not try this now? Hmm. So how do we work towards closing that gender gap here in Malaysia, right? At least here, you know, how much of it is policymaking level action? How much of it is, you know, needed at the grassroots community level? Yeah, I think honestly, in the last five years or so, I mean, like we have seen an explosion of civil society, right? Either both organized or organic coming forth on gender issues, uh, whether it's uh, period poverty, child marriage, sexual harassment, period spot checking in schools. So definitely the demand is there right, for that change. And we know it and we feel it, you know. Uh, the opposition to this gender equality, I feel, is really manufactured, right, uh, through the work of conservatives. And this exists in every country, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, the investment in women and girls benefits every family, every community, every state and every nation. And a nation that sets away 50% of its citizens and its talent pool, its workers, how will we be able to succeed, right? So we are stopped, you know, for policy frameworks which put women squarely as equal citizens in society. So I think that definitely, you know, that policy level, it's about time to like, you know, get to more robust policies on gender. I think what comes to mind is a lot of all the work that's being done um, on citizenship laws, right? And we've seen how much pushback that um, Malaysian mothers are receiving just for simply just wanting to pass on citizenship to their own children. And the the backlash that you get doesn't make sense to a lot of us because, you know, these children aren't a security threat to a country. They're children. Yeah, indeed. And actually, when I was reading uh, up uh, for this interview, uh, you know, uh, remember the time I was talking about um, how uh, the PAP in Singapore kind of uh, reformed its way of thinking, right, mm -hmm. about uh, 
uh, women's uh, place in their society and as a how do I say as a voting block basically right uh, and um, it came from the leadership of Prime Minister Lee Sien Long uh, and um, you know and one of the things that they did was one they actually you know kind of gave uh, women uh, civil servants and male civil servants the same medical benefits the next thing they had done was basically do this they gave citizenship to Singapore mothers for their children, you know. So it is a way of like shifting the frame to say, oh, um, uh, and this was actually, uh, this is what Lee Sien Long was quoted, that, you know, women as, I mean, it's kind of steeped in the gender stereotypes as well, because women as mothers, you know, think about their children. And so they bring a different perspective, a long-term perspective, which is valuable. Right. Uh, and that recognition of women who are responsible mothers and, you know, wanted to raise their children and give them, you know, citizenship for their children was one of those factors that also triggers changes. Right. So in society, because, you know, there's a perception for women of how valuable they are as a citizen to the country and the value of, you know, the family they're trying to build, you know, even though there is not a Malaysian male citizen in that, uh, how do I say, setup. You know, now with um, Parliament sitting, Siva, and we have another session coming up later this year, what are some concrete actions that you'd like to see that's on your wish list? Well, I would definitely like to see a comprehensive gender equality bill in place for women and girls. So I know it's not going to happen in this parliament sitting because I've already talked about how this approach has been used, helpful to the Philippines, right? Mm -hmm. And how their heads and shoulders even uh, ahead even of Singapore in the gender gap index. So, you know, for me, it's always, it's not only about who has the money. It's about who has that political will to wield their power in favor of women and girls and make us equal, you know? And uh, so, I mean, so I, I feel like that's, you know, I'd really like to see that. Though. I'd like to see the Sexual Harassment Act pass in all of society, including, you know, organizations and businesses, you know, taking that as a sort of a, normative standard, you know, and responsibility to ensure the safety, you know, of their women workers, you know. Um, of course, I'd always like to see quality childcare programs being initiated by both government and private sector stakeholders so that women can like, you know, have these uh, access to care that is, you know, affordable, available and accessible, right, uh, so that they can uh, participate better in the economy. And um, of course, most of all, I wish that, you know, <laughs> All ministries, you know, take gender issues to the heart of their planning and decision-making processes because all of the ministries should have gender as a concern because the work of the ministries touches uh, women, you know, mm. and make it a priority, yeah. Mm. Are you hopeful or doubtful that we will continue to make um, significant progress in closing the gender gap? You know, I strongly feel that definitely, you know, with the younger generation, you know, who are far more conscious about their rights, you know, and I hope that the participation of youth, you know, and the new youth vote that we have, you know, will kind of help liberate some of these archaic ways of thinking which keep holding women and girls back. So in that case, I am hopeful, you know, but I am mindful that, you know, we seem to be going from one crisis to another, you know, from whether it's COVID, climate change, conflict, food insecurity and then now of course you know with the case of Sri Lanka you know possibly debt crisis as well you know as nations mm -hmm. unless we can start focusing on people you know take that 
development approach where we focus on people. And by that, I mean, especially those most affected by crisis, right? And start our change interventions from this focus, you know, we will just be going like ding-donging from one crisis to another without having learned very much, you know. So we feel, I feel that, you know, women have to be a key locus from which we build our change strategies, you know, and our development strategies in this chaotic world. And I'm hopeful that the younger generation will make that happen. And do you have a final message for our listeners on, I guess, what they can do to, you know, voice out their part in, in when it comes to gender equality? Yeah, I think that, you know, we just have to really understand because gender equality looks like this big word and a deeply politicized word. But if we just go back, you know, into our homes, you know, and we go back into our communities, of course, we want to see, you know, the girls in our family thrive. We want to see the women in our families and communities thrive and be happy, right? And not to be overburdened by all of these things that women are burdened by, you know, whether it's the care burden or the risks of violence, uh, you know, or the risks of uh, a lack of security. So I feel like, you know, uh, gender equality may look like very big and uh, something that is a political agenda of uh, particular stakeholders in society, but actually it's everybody's business, you know, and when there is gender equality, everybody thrives. On that note, thank you so much for joining me today, Siva. Thank you, Sue Ann. It was a pleasure to be able to chat with you on this issue. I've been speaking to Sivanandi Tanindran, Executive Director of the Asian Pacific Resource and Research Centre for Women, or also known as ARO, on the Global Gender Gap Report 2022. If you missed any part of today's show or any previous Live and Learn episodes, you can download our podcasts on bfm.my or on the BFM app. I'm Lim Suen and this has been Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.